Colleagues, Anthony McKay, President and CEO of the National Centre on Education and the Economy, bringing you uh, what I know is going to be a very engaging uh, series edition of Global Ed Talks with the Honourable Hekia Parata. Hekia, welcome. Kia ora. Lovely to be here. It's wonderful to have you. Uh, let me just, before I ask you to say a word about where you come from in a conversation that we have titled The Politics of Education Reform Pre and Post COVID, which is no small topic, but I'm going to ask you in a moment to say where you come from as you address that kind of huge challenge that we are facing globally. Let me just say this. Um, you, for me, have been a, an educator, uh, but much more. But I don't mean that in the sense that an educator is not an adequate description. Uh, but I just want to make it clear that you have come from a New Zealand context, an activist in your own community, on all matters to do with community, not only education. But then at various stages in your career, you've been a diplomat, you've been a policy analyst, you became a politician. You, of course, are a former, recently, Minister of Education uh, in New Zealand. You now advise on a range of education and related matters, both within NZ, but more particularly internationally. Within the Kingdom of Bahrain, you are advising the Supreme Council on education, on development and training. You are advising the OECD on the reform of education. You sit on multiple boards, including Asia Society's board uh, around global competence. And of course, you actually advise NCEE, which is fantastic. Now, I can say all of that and people will get a sense of a remarkable and ongoing career. But I just wonder whether in the opening, before we get to the substance of this global ed talk around the politics of education, if you could just say a word about where you're coming from, heck yeah. Well, um, kia ora and warm Pacific greetings from my part of the world, uh, Tony, to you, uh, to the National Centre for uh, Education and the Economy, um, our colleagues, um, and to those who are engaged in this wonderful enterprise of how we lift opportunities for children and young people around the world because of a quality education. So I'm coming to you right now from the easternmost point of the East Cape of the North Island of New Zealand. Um, this is also my uh, tribal area of Ngāti uh, It is the first place in the world that the first ray of sunlight um, touches uh, to begin a new day on our mountain, Mount Hikurangi. And that's translated into a kind of cultural imperative about being first into the future and what that requires of us. And so in an area that has significant social and economic challenges, it nevertheless is um, in the context of uh, significant cultural wealth. And the importance of uh, our young people, and I was once one of those, um, being imbued with this idea or inculcated with this idea that um, we're responsible for being powerful actors in our own lives, of um, having aspirations to, to leadership, first leading a strong life ourselves before 
um, having the possibility of leadership uh, within our wider communities. And that requires actually quite a significant capacity for followership, the ability to, to, to operate on both sides of, of that uh, dichotomy. And, um, and, and I just want to say one other thing, which I think is really important to a discussion about education internationally and globally, is that what I've learned locally is the importance of language, culture, and identity, and how that sets um, you up in your world to engage with that world, and the critical responsibility then that teachers and educators have to see, really see, the students that come before them in all their language, cultures, and identities around the world. And I think that's one of the most, um, that's one of the greatest gifts that I've had as uh, a Ngāti Pro New Zealander global citizen of the world is to know firmly who I am, where I come from, and how that helps me participate and contribute to the world. So with all of that, that good morning, wonderful. good evening. <laughs> well, the, the great thing is that you bring that perspective uh, uh, clearly into the politics of education reform, not only in New Zealand, uh, now globally, but of course you also had um, a significant relationship with the US because you're a diplomat in uh, New Zealand's embassy in Washington DC. So um, a lot of the, the people who are going to be enjoying this, this uh, conversation, right? Uh, global, yes, but actually a US focus and everything you've just said, uh, I think is gonna resonate with them. So let me ask you this question. If you think about the current context, and we are talking about pre and post COVID, and we're talking about education reform in very challenging times. What do you see as being the biggest challenge that is facing our respective education systems? I think the biggest challenge, um, and it was a big challenge pre-COVID and it was laid bare, it is being laid bare during COVID, and it will be our biggest challenge post-COVID, and that is how we deal with equity or disequity, really. Um, we have seen that this pandemic uh, and the response to it in, in most, if not all, countries has fallen on the shoulders of um, essential workers, many of whom come from you know, the lowest um, equity levels within our societies. And each day they've had to go out and you know, um, clean and cook and drive buses and, and so on and so forth. And um, they are often the ones that have had the least uh, opportunities to be successful in our education system. And I think that this is a, a significant challenge for us globally. If we do not attend to with uh, honesty and honour the disequities that are part and parcel of all of our systems to greater or lesser degree, then we are not only shortchanging those people, we're also shortchanging the strengths of our um, social, cultural and ec economic um, parts of our community. We've seen in recent research, for instance, you know, the, the huge disequity of wealth transferring up to the top 1% of um, the, the data in the United States. And that will be reflected, perhaps not to that extreme around the world, but certainly um, it represents a kind of bifurcation 
in our societies between those who are extremely wealthy, those who have stood still, and the vast majority who have made no gains at all and are not only standing still, but are slipping backwards. And the answer to all of that is a great education, an education that gives every one of our children and young people who will grow into our parents and grandparents, who will become our workers across every strata of society, to give every one of us the opportunity of a great education. Now, I am, um, I have had that gift instilled in me. I grew up, as I say, in a community which was socially and economically and continues to be um, very challenged, but grew up with the expectation that with a great education, we could all do well and give back to our communities. And that is true across the globe, because across the globe, we are made up of small local communities. Um, and so, you know, it's our responsibility to address equity, to move past the rhetoric and on into which child where needs what resource when in order to get a good education. But to do that, um, Honourable Hekia Parata, to do that requires um, a system of education, um, a system of learning, that um, is dependent upon leadership at multiple levels. Now, and I'm not just uh, talking about political leadership. I obviously want you to say a word about how you saw, how you see your role as a, what you've described, or, or what others might describe as being a conviction politician. Yep. Mm -hmm. But what you've just outlined is going to take leadership at multiple levels and a form of leadership that surely we are, desperately wanting right now within a, a, a COVID environment. How do you see the leadership challenge? I do think it's enormous. And I think one of the other things that um, the COVID environment has, has made clear, not only that these disequities persist and they are extreme and entrenched, but we've also seen either significant great examples of leadership or some significant very poor examples of leadership. And I, I think in education, as well as in any other part of our political economy, leadership is important, it's critical, it's necessary. Um, uh, in my own experience of, of becoming Minister of Education here and having the honour of that role for, for almost six years, I literally ran for Parliament to become the Minister of Education. I knew what a good education had done for me and for my brothers and sisters and my wider community, and I knew um, its powerful potential. And I think it's incumbent on every government around the world, no matter the scale of population and challenges, that we make possible a good education for every one of our, our citizens. And that does require leadership at multiple levels. It is as critical as at the macro level, um, you know, across our global organisations, um, at the national level, as it is at the local level, that small community or that large community at the centre of which are these schools. We need to have um, levels of leadership that are capable of harnessing a community, um, having a community recognise that together they form the context in which their children and young people can be successful. Um, and that means that 
you know, you have to get real about who makes the difference. And one of the things that I absolutely understood was that it wouldn't matter how many great speeches I might be able to give or um, how many policy papers that I might preside over. What would make the difference to a child's learning would be the quality of teaching in that child's classroom, in their learning environment. And that meant that I focused, not always successfully, but always with honorable intent on how we could support teachers to be successful, how we could honor them as being the nation builders they are. They have our children in their classrooms, you know, eight, uh, six to eight hours a day, five days a week, 40 weeks of the year, or some variation thereof. They are the ones making magic in learning up and down the classroom because they are the ones engaging the children right there where the learning happens. And so our jobs as leaders is to create the conditions and the environment for them to be successful. And one of the other things that COVID has done has made it absolutely clear to parents, if they hadn't been clear before, and I'm sure the vast majority had, just how hard the job of teaching is, how important it is that their children have the opportunity to go to a school, to a learning environment, where not only the learning is engaged, but the social and emo emotional connection that's part of how we try to ensure that we are growing good citizens of our countries and, and of the world. And so one of the things that I also was very focused on was um, data because data, good data, will lead us to where the needs are specifically. So we developed this mantra here in New Zealand during my time as Minister of, from numbers to names to needs. So the government could have the numbers anonymized, know what that tells us about what the challenge is, but the schools knew these children's names. They knew who the data represented, and therefore, what were the needs? What were the needs precisely of these children that we needed to cater for? So you've got to be in this constant um, dynamic partnership um, in leadership where you recognize that your job is to lead in the political economy, but principals and teachers are leading in their learning ecosystem and their learning community. Parents are leading in the social and emotional um, wraparound that makes it possible for teachers to be seen and honored to get on with their job. And teachers are responsible for making sure that the most important part of a family, our children, are getting the, the teaching and learning um, experience that's necessary and that it comes closed in the different language, culture, and identity of those children's homes. So from numbers to names to needs, from you know, local to district to state to nation to the world, um, this is what we are all doing, telescoping up and down every day in this engagement with education. You, you didn't leave the, the connections that you've just outlined a chance. You literally created a dialogue an ongoing conversation between all of the stakeholders, the members of the community from national to local. Just say a brief word about how you did that because this was quite a, an annual calendar. Yes, yes it was. Um, again, another thing that um, I was very conscious of and very respectful of was that um, our children and teachers are part of real communities every day. And we too often encourage, I think, in politics, the idea that there is a, um, 
if you have a problem, you go to a politician, the politician locates it and then comes back. And you end up in this unreal bilateral relationship that's yeah. not going to progress what really needs to happen. Because whether at multilateral organizational level or at community, it is multiples of people who are trying to get things done. And so I set up the, this national cross-sector forum, um, which was about how do we together raise the learning and the achievement of our young people and brought together in those forum by design leaders within those communities. So yes, teachers and principals, um, chairs of the school boards, but also um, the local police commander, the local business people, the local social workers, the local church and tribal leaders, all the, of those the people. The ecosystem, that's right, and, and gave it transparency and recognition and respect, but also said, you guys all have to talk to each other. You know, you just, you can't keep having these, um, well, I'm going to talk to the minister about just what the local legislation is for the Chamber of Commerce or, you know, what my policing challenges are. No, we're all in this together. So let's form this, this body of the coalition of the willing is how I saw it. And um, we held those every quarter across the year and we held them in different parts of New Zealand with different people who reflected those parts of the community um, and then I realized well if I'm going to be real about this we actually have to not just do this at national level we have to do this regionally so then we introduced and funded 10 regional um, uh, community gatherings and they met four times a year so that was 40 meetings of 10 community level organizations with four meetings of national level so 44 meetings and i committed to go to as many of those as possible because in my culture we have the saying kanohi te kanohi which is face to face turn up in person be present in person and see the people and have them see you and make that authentic connection and so that's what we did and and it, it was like creating a movement a momentum for who our children and young people making sure they were getting a great education acquiring the skills and qualifications they need to be successful agreeing on the pathways that needed to be there so getting yep. past the employer saying oh schools need to do more of this so that you know these these young people turn up to our places employment already ready to do this and schools were saying well we need employers to tell us what kind yep. and i said like hey Talk to each other. Talk yeah. to each other so you can what see I, that. What I love about this is I've always uh, remembered your two major uh, uh, imperatives. Build momentum, create the conditions at the local level to be able to advance this agenda. So you talk about face-to-face. -face. Well, right now it's hard to get face-to-face -face apart from in this way. So I'm going to ask you this. It's not just if you were still Minister for Education, you are still operating within a global environment. You are advising on policy. Yep. What advice would you give now about going forward? This is in the post-COVID environment. We're talking about the need for education reform because you've made that crystal clear. We're never going to get high-performing systems without equity, right? Yep. So what are you going to say to us about the way in which we can take that reform agenda forward? Where would you put your own uh, uh, discretionary effort in order to be able to get the kind of system change that we want? Okay, well, as you've already acknowledged, um, I focus on absolutely 
um, what conditions need to be present in the environment in order for there to be traction, momentum, achievement, gain, basically. And the two key things that, are, first of all, yes, I think if we do not attend to equity, we will exacerbate the problems that have already been laid bare by COVID. But the two particular things that I would commend our attention to has already become apparent in the way that systems have responded around the world. Um, and that is, in the first instance, it's differentiation. Um, we already knew that children and teachers can learn and, and, and teach in different ways, but I I think that's become even more obvious now. And so I would commend um, real attention being paid to this area. So what we know is that um, teachers aren't all perfect in absolutely every pedagogical professional requirement. Why? Because they're humans. None of us are all absolutely perfect. And I think one of the things that is obvious, particularly with online teaching and blended teaching and learning and so forth, is to learn to differentiate within the teaching resource that you have in your school. Some teachers will just be better as an online presence, will respond and deliver better in that. Others are much better at kind of pastoral care. How do they support each other as professionals, but also how do they support um, the, the students as well as parents? Others are really good at developing resources and saying, listen, this is really knockout for grade four, you know, yep. boys or, or whatever. Yep. So how do you use that differentiation and then um, executed in a differentiated way. Um, if you are better in, as an online uh, screen person, then you be the front, the front, if you like, the presenter. But it's drawing on the strengths of all of those who make up your school. Similarly, children, um, much more cohort learning. We've said, let's get rid of the un industrial underpinning of most of our education systems. This is a great opportunity to say, how do we get within a cohort as opposed to five-year-olds moving to the next class at six and so forth, you know, much more of what was already happening, teaching across cohorts of, you know, grade three, four and five or so on, and then working out groups within those, what is it that they particularly need? And that leads me to my second um, focus of attention, which is personalizing. This whole numbers to names to needs was very much about what are the particular needs of this student and then the group of students that might have similar needs and then how do we differentiate the teaching that we deliver to these young people so that it meets their particular needs. So I think differentiating in the way and what is being taught and to who, and then the personalizing within that in different aggregations, different organizations within the school and in, in groups of schools in the same communities or across communities. Um, because I think those two ways will both learn and apply the lessons that we've received from COVID and give us the opportunity to um, grow learning even in the most challenging times. And that means, by the way, just the plug for assessing, we shouldn't stop assessments. I don't mean examinations. I mean um, real-time observations of and judgments by teachers that the aha moment, we see what worked for this group, recording those as assessments to, to grow the picture in the absence of formal exams, um, much more focus on what the richness is coming out of formative observations by the people who know best which are the teachers who are in closest proximity to these young people. 
Heck, you, you and I both know uh, from the work at NCE, from the work that we've done internationally, the International Summit on the Teaching Profession, many of the things that you've just mentioned have, are features of high-performing systems uh, at this moment. But as you point yep. out, this is a different set of circumstances and we can really leverage some of those powerful ways of building strength into our learning systems at every level uh, as a result of the environment in which we find ourselves. So if I get this argument right, with a focus on equity, we are going to get high performance for all. We are. We with are. a focus on the right kind of leadership at multiple levels and with communities seriously engaging in a collective way, it, learning's everybody's business. Let's make yep. sure that that happens. Then, with a sense of how we can drive really strong pedagogy, <laughs> right, for learning for all kids, i.e. the equity question, we will get much greater purchase around the kind of learning we want and the success we want for all young people. So that's, uh, we'll get the political, uh, the political economy right, not the politics, not the party politics, but the politics of education will drive this in the way that you've talked about. So is that all we need? In other words, um, if we can achieve all that, we are gonna get great outcomes, kids are on their way, they're gonna be successful. Um, absolutely. And the proof is in our metrics here in New Zealand. If you address equity, if you support through data the kids that particularly need different um, teaching and learning experiences, if you support the teachers to be able to deliver those and you create the um, community environment that is supportive of all of that, you will make inroads on disequity. You will see young people of colour achieving and from poorer socioeconomic backgrounds and yes you will see it lift the performance of the entire cohort of, of of a community that's happened we've got the data for that and it's not just about the political economy the way forward is also about the economy it's the economy stupid one of the things that we have seen through covid is the economy has taken a real hit in every country we saw this dichotomy being debated politically across the world should we prioritize public health or should we prioritize economy it's not either or it's and, and. How do we both attend to public health, public goods such as education and social uh, cohesion, and how do we attend to the economy? The answer lies in them being integrated, not separated in this either or. It's an and, and. Because here's the thing, Tony, learning is earning. If we make sure that every one of our young people has um, skin in the game in the economy and in our society, that they feel that they can access the same opportunities as the kids in the next county or in the next state or in the next country, that they see that their local ecosystem is being supported in a way that it can support them, and that if they apply themselves to their learning, they will be able to earn, they will have the income necessary to live a good quality life, and aggregated, that will strengthen the economy. And the more we diversify amongst the learnings that we deliver, the more we're gonna get this diversification in the economies of the world, the better off we're all going to be. It's that practical, it's that pragmatic, it's that inspirational. Thank you, Parada. Thank you. Thank you.